I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a BFI podcast that's been rewound and restarted. Our new format debuts, drum roll. Now, each fortnight we'll have four sections, four stories, all focusing on a different part of the British Film Institute's work. Curation, events, production, education, streaming, the odd bit of editorialising, the BFI does loads. We're hoping this new pod will introduce you to all of the bits and bobs that call the BFI home. I'm your host, Henry Barnes, the BFI's digital editor, and coming up on this episode we have... Greta Gerwig telling programmer Anna Bogotskaya how her Oscar-nominated film Lady Bird was inspired by mother-daughter squabbling, teenage narcissism and 90s indie warblers Ben Folds 5. Another Oscar nominee, Free Billboards Outside Ebbing's Missouri editor John Gregory, looking back at a career working with filmmakers like Mike Lee, Mike Newell and Martin McDonough. An old interview with Max von Sydow plucked from the archive especially for our Ingmar Bergman centenary celebrations. And an introduction to Working Class Heroes, a season showcasing working class film talent, programmed by BFI curator Danny Lee. First up, Greta Gerwig and Ladybird. Gerwig's solo directorial debut, which is on an extended run at the BFI South Bank, stars Saoirse Ronan as Christine Ladybird McPherson, a Sacramento teen itching to escape California to, quote, go where the culture is. Standing in her way are money problems, a crippling self-regard, and a hate-love relationship with her mum, played by Laurie Metcalf. After screening as a surprise film at last year's London Film Festival, Lady Bird has soared. It heads to the Oscars next month with five shots for a statue, including Best Picture, Director and Screenplay for Gerwig, Lead Actress for Ronan, and Supporting Actress for Metcalf. Before the nominations were announced, BFI programmer Anna Bogutskaya talked to Greta Gerwig about bringing Lady Bird home. Lady Bird, is that your given name? Yeah. Why is it in quotes? I gave it to myself. It's given to me by me. What was the writing process for this? Was it a couple of years or just something that kind of, you know, materialized in a really short span of time? Um, how did you approach that? Because I've heard you speak about it sometimes and it always seemed like a really organic process for you. Is it? It's organic, but it's not fast. <laughs> um, I wish I was one of those writers. I always sometimes you know you read interviews with different filmmakers you love or see them interviewed and and they say oh I wrote the script in 19 days and I'm like how in the world did you write a script in 19 days it takes me like at least a year and a half um I mean it took me about uh, probably a couple years to write this I didn't I wasn't it's not a couple of years of working solidly and 
Um, as anybody who's ever tried to write knows that a lot of time is just wasted. It's wasted wandering around your apartment and then deciding you need to go for a walk and then coming back and then writing two sentences and then going out for another walk. Um, I wish I could force myself to generate ma material more quickly, but it's my, it's my way to essentially overwrite. I, I write way too much material and then I spend a lot of time distilling what I've written and pairing it back and trying to make it as as sort of uh, succinct and as powerful as I can because even though movies are uh, a, a visual medium, it, it is also a medium of language and you have a, a limited amount of real estate and I think that you should one should I like to make my words count and I in a lot of ways I think as a writer I'm I'm closer to w w what I think probably p playwrights do that's how I approach it and it and it takes forever <laughs> and <laughs> so you can expect my next film in 2025 <laughs> I think one of the first scenes I wrote was actually late in the movie when someone at college asks her, where are you from? Mm -hmm. And she lies and she says, San Francisco, not Sacramento. And I, I, I wrote that and I had a sense of wanting to almost reverse engineer the movie so that when she says that, it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of a gut punch because hopefully at that point, you, you feel like you've known these people and this place intimately and you feel like she's selling it out to look a little bit cooler to a guy she just met in college. And that and that sort of doubling of like, it's funny and also tragic was, was I remember writing that scene and I was like, well, I better make a good movie to go before that scene. <laughs> was there any particular films or books or records that you, or, that you were listening to or while you were writing, while you were going through that kind of longer process? Well, I think as often happens when you're working on something, um, things start coming into your life that are informing what you're doing. Uh, so for example, like I, I was writing the movie and then there happened to be a revival of the Peter Bogdanovich movie Paper Moon going on and I went and saw it and I'd seen it um, at home, but I'd never seen it in a movie theater. And uh, I was watching it and they have this great extended one-shot fight scene in a car. What do you mean we're out of Bibles? Why didn't you tell me we're out of Bibles? You're like in the box too, don't you? Well, you know, you've got an excuse for everything. Could you blame me for it? If we were running out of Bibles, you should have told me we were running out of Bibles. Well, we're running out of Bibles. Well, then we got to get new ones. And let's get new ones. We can fix them up in Great Bend. Great Bend's the other way. Well, we got to have Bibles, don't we? And, you know, that went into my <laughs> my my memory. <laughs> I thought, oh, well. I want to go where culture is, but like how New in the York, world did I raise such or a at snob. least Connecticut or New Hampshire, well, where you, writers you live in the get woods. Get into those schools anyway, Mom. You can't even pass your driver's test because you wouldn't let me practice. The way enough. that you work, or the or the way that you don't work, you're not even worth state tuition, Christine. My name is Ladybird. Uh, well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Ladybird, like Christine. you said you would. Just you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College and then to jail and then back to City College and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. Nobody launches themselves out of a car, but like that, you know these little things start coming into your life. I started reading a lot of Catholic writers and priests and thinkers, um, Henry Nouwen and um, Thomas Merton, Simone Veal, um, and, 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 and they're kind of 
spiritual writing, there's a, a priest named James Martin who wrote the Ignatian Guide to Almost Everything <laughs> about St. Ignatius of Loyola who started the, the mm-hmm. Jesuits. And, and that all kind of went in. But, 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 but I, I found, I remember in college, uh, this used to happen all the time when I was writing a paper mm-hmm. um, in, in, in a class that seemed to have nothing to do with what, the, what my other class was that had the paper something would come up that would be like oh well that's incredibly useful for me Mm -hmm. over here it's like it's almost like you're you're looking for the things or it's like if you learn a word and then you hear it all the time it's not as if I have the references and then I go and make the thing Mm -hmm. it's that I start making the thing and then more things will come into my life that feed into it and it's kind of this it's nice because it almost gives you a way to organize all these things that you love because you're seeing it through the lens of what you're trying to make I read somewhere that you had a mixtape that you kept playing during the production. What were the the songs on it? Well, I had a I actually made music mixes for every day of shooting. Um, yeah, uh, I got that from Mike Mills. Um, he did a lot of stuff like that on the set of Twentieth Century Women, and I thought it was really effective in uniting um, not only the cast but the crew. It kind of made everybody in the same space and. So I had a little pink boom box <laughs> and I'd play my mixes. Um, it would depend on the day, honestly. Um, a lot of the music that's in the film I would play, but I also played a lot of, um, I would play a lot of different classical pieces at different points, a lot of kind of bombastic opera because I felt like mm, that's how it feels to be a teenager, kind of. It's it's a little... Uh, dramatic <laughs> and it felt like that that level of um of drama was was necessary um but you know a lot of stuff from the 90s and early 2000s like a lot of Ani DeFranco and Ben Folds 5 and <sighs> Tori Amos I wanted it to feel almost like a photocopy of a painting, a color copy of a painting. Um, that it, it, it both lost and gained some, something in its reproduction and in its distance. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes when you make something that is in a time a time period that's not now is that there is this sort of overzealousness in reminding people what when it is um and also a a unity of the year uh for example if like a movie takes place in 1953 and all of a sudden every car on the street is from 1953 and every song on the radio is from 1953 and that's never how a time period feels there's always tracers of an earlier time in the time that you're in so, you know, cars, if it's, you know, 2002, there's cars on the street from 1993, mm-hmm. and there's cars from 2002, and there's songs on the radio from 1996, but also 2002. And I, I wanted it to have that kind of feeling of um, the 90s are mashed up in what's going on in this. And, and also, the, the, there's, of course, it's, you know, the rise of the internet, but it's a sort of a having a one computer household that would use the the landline of the telephone that like that kind of thing but we don't have to make a meal of it it can just be there um that kind of stuff it's that detail orientation and also i mean with the production design 
this was pre it was pre everyone having a pinterest board on in the internet it was pre being able to curate your taste Mm -hmm. in that way uh so teen culture Mm -hmm. was being received through magazines and uh and the radio and television um but it wasn't there wasn't as much of a emphasis on a niche culture Mm -hmm. it's not things that you are hit over the head with it's just the cumulative effect of it Mm -hmm. it's both apart from you but it feels true one of the things that I really, really loved about um, not just the film, but Lady Bird's character in particular was just how cruel she can be as well. You know, it's very, I mean, she reminded me a lot of, you know, a lot of girlfriends and myself at that age where you, you're you so self-absorbed and trying to figure yourself out that you don't realize how hurtful you can be to other people around you. Sure. Um, and allowing her those scenes um, yeah. and those little but. That l- those little empathetic moments, I think, were the ones that really stood out to me. Um, so, I guess the question is, can you can you talk a little bit about kind of l- allowing her to be flawed, yeah. um, particularly in a in a genre where actually young women aren't really allowed to be flawed and mm-hmm. cruel sometimes and make mistakes and learn from them and realize that they've been hurtful to people who love them. Yeah. Uh, no, they're not even allowed to have acne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it was funny when I was talking to Sersh about it, and God bless her, she's not vain. Mm-hmm. She was totally open to it. And um, because I, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. Every single movie about a teenage girl, even movies about you know interesting, complex teenage mm-hmm. girls, they all have perfect skin. <laughs> which I just feel like that's not fair. That's not true. Sersha and I had this thing of like letting her have acne. And then also I had Sersha dye her own hair because I wanted it to be a kind of like bad dye job um, that she would have done herself. And mm-hmm. she did do it herself. And and those things allowing her to be physically imperfect, but that doesn't mean she's not beautiful. Mm-hmm. She is beautiful. And you and you feel that. And, and, and that, that the that the requirement for for being worthy of love and being able to give love is not that you're perfect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I mean, in terms of her flaws and how she grows, I think for for all of the characters, but I think particularly for the the, the mother and the daughter, for Laurie and Saoirse, for Marion and Lady Bird, I, I think mothers are too often held in movies in one of two categories. They're either angels or they're devils. And I don't see a lot of mothers who fall neatly into either category. I think there are a lot of people who are trying really hard (laughs) and making mistakes and getting up and figuring out what the next uh, next thing is. Why can't I just make the eggs? Because you take too long, you make a big mess, and I have to clean the whole thing up. Eggs aren't good for the environment anyways. What? You heard her. Quickly, please. Look at all these pictures. Every newspaper looks like USA Today. Shelly and I are trying to be vegan. That's the soy milk. You wear leather jackets. But they're vintage, so they don't support the industry. They aren't done. There's white stuff. You know how much you have Brambles? Pigs are smarter than him, even. I never thought Brambles was a genius, okay? Mom, the eggs are not done. Fine, make your own fucking eggs. I wanted to. You won't let me. I think in terms of... Ladybird and ooh, the inevitable narcissism of being 17 years mm-hmm. old. Um, it, what's so pleasurable about watching Sersha's performance is that um, when, when she is able to step outside of herself, it feels 
it's like such a triumph because because you've seen her not be able to understand that people exist outside of her mm -hmm. and then when she is able to like there's a you know the scene with her and um danny mm -hmm. outside the coffee shop yeah. and it and that's why she's a brilliant actress is you just see it flash across her face she suddenly sees him mm -hmm. and she's seeing him for the very first time because she always saw him in relationship to what she he could give her and then all of a sudden she's like it has nothing to do with me He's in the middle of his own opera. Mm -hmm. Everybody's in the middle of their own opera. And I, I love that moment of that being able to step outside of yourself. Um, but my, my feeling about flaws or imperfection is always that if the, f if the fighting and if the conflict, is, you know, for example, between the mother and daughter didn't seem real, then the love wouldn't seem real. If, if it's all perfectly... A setup and everybody's nobody's making mistakes then the love doesn't count and uh so I wanted to create a situation where you felt that the growth was really growing from something and that it wasn't inevitable that it had to be earned Lady Bird is on that extended run at London's BFI South Bank now you can see the on-stage interview with Greta Gerwig and Saoirse Ronan on the BFI's YouTube page Next, we're rooting around in the archive to celebrate our Ingmar Bergman centenary season. The late Swedish director's frequent collaborator, actor Max von Sydow, appeared on stage at the BFI South Bank, then the National Film Theatre, in 1988 to be interviewed by the film historian Peter Cowie. This piece also includes a more contemporary contribution from Johan Hallström. Johan's an actor and programmer and the son of director Lasse Hallström. He's been consulting for the BFI on our Bergman season. This piece was written and presented by Taryn Joffe, Taryn is on a placement with us from the National Film and Television School, where she's studying for an MA in Film Studies, specialising in programming and curation. Take it away, Taryn. The Seventh Seal is probably Bergman's best-known film. As an international import, it changed the American film landscape and pushed the scope of Artar cinema. The release of the film in Britain was the first time audiences were introduced to Bergman, and more specifically, images of Max von Sydow. In a certain sense, I think he was a bit of an alter ego, obviously, playing all, all these characters in the uh, films that Bergman both wrote and directed. That's Johann Hellström. I think they were very close. I think they were a bit secretive around the relationship. They kept it to themselves. The Seventh Seal is set at the time of the Black Death, and it's about a knight called Antonius Bloch who returns to Sweden after years of fighting in the Crusades. He unexpectedly meets Death on a beach, who has come to claim him, but Antonius prolongs his fate by challenging Death to a game of chess. And with time against him, he seeks the answers to life's big questions. Du spelar ju schack, inte sant? Hur vet du det? Ja. Jag har sett på målningar och hört i visorna. Ja, jag är verkligen en ganska skicklig schackspelare. Bergman and his cast never anticipated the immense success of the film. We knew that we were doing something unusual. That's von Sydow. Uh, we knew uh, that we were doing something that Ingmar had tried to do for some time, but uh, hadn't been allowed because it was considered such a gamble financially. But uh, after great success with the, the Smiles of the Summer Night, he was finally allowed to do this thing. Uh, he was given the enormous sum of, I think it was, $40,000 to do it. 
Von Sutter had contacted Bergman for the first time in the 1940s. Bergman was working on his film Prison and the actor called to ask if he needed extra policemen. Unfortunately, Bergman said no, but a few years later, Von Sutter moved to Malmo and met Bergman at the Malmo Municipal Theatre. Bergman was working on a small play called Wood Painting with his students, which The Seven Seal would be based on. The film was, according to Max von Sydow, also inspired by Karl Orff's Carmina Burana. I remember when he first mentioned to me that he wanted me in the film, he didn't ask me to do The Night. He wanted me to do one of the, the actors. He, he said, have you seen a painting of Picasso with the circus family? I, th I think it is a, it's a very well-known painting in blue and rose colors with a man in uh, harlequin costume, something like that, and his wife and a little child. And he had some idea of using that, and he wanted me to play this clown. And I was delighted. But um, sometime later he came and said, I think uh, I've changed my mind. I want you to do the night. And I was uh, very discouraged, I, mean, I remember, because the night in the play didn't say a word, because Somewhere during the crusade, somebody had cut out his tongue, so he couldn't speak. <laughs> so I was very disappointed and said, well, uh, okay, but, uh, <laughs> well, he, he will have his tongue, so I'm going to give you some dialogue. And I'm sorry I did what I did. Von Sutter had started his career at an early age in the theatre, to the surprise of his parents. They had certainly not, in their wildest dreams, thought that I would go to the theatre. Theatre did not really exist in their world, but they were very kind and very sweet about it. Uh, I needed theatre, I think. I know now. I didn't know it then, but I felt it. Uh, but I was not aware of it, uh, and I used it shamelessly, I think, as a therapy. I was very shy and had great difficulties to communicate with people that I didn't know. And suddenly theatre gave me a lot of freedom and license, and I was allowed to express myself wildly on the stage uh, in a way that I never had dared to do at home. So, uh, I think it was very good for me, actually. Do you think that Bergman had you in mind when he made these parts? Did he ever say to you that, uh, well, I've got this idea for so-and-so or, or a certain type of role? How did he describe these characters to you when he first... He never made speeches about how, what ideas he had about his plays or his films. Very little. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. He usually gave us a very short introduction. He, he never gave us any form of, uh, say, uh, manuals about how we were supposed to treat the characters or how we were supposed to analyze them. He never analyzed his stories to us. Uh, it's difficult to tell really how he works, but uh, I have a feeling that he has, a, he has a great sense. Of course, he knows human nature very well. He knows a lot about human conflicts and human relationships, and he has a great sense of, uh, say, human pacing and human rhythm. The magician, or the face, uh, as was known here, was it must have been very challenging because you didn't say much. You were you were virtually mute, weren't you? Yes. Yes. By that time, I had an, I, I, I managed to understand that it is <laughs> that it can be very exciting not to say too much in the <laughs> in the part. I think also that uh, Bergman wrote the part. Uh, it's a very autobiographical character in a way because. I feel, I think that he feels very much uh, that he is in the same position as the magician there, mm. that people expect so much of him and they project so much on him and want him to be uh, in a certain way, which he maybe not, he isn't at all. Mm. Uh, but everybody wants to get his uh, thing out of him. And he defends himself against this. After The Magician came The Virgin Spring, another historical drama in the style of The Seven Seal and The Magician. Then at the start of the 60s, Bergman produced three signature works, Through a Glass Darkly, Winterlight and The Silence. His orthodox upbringing and conflict with religion would be addressed in these films. They were fraught with emotion and examined faith and alienation in the modern age. The new films contained less exotic imagery, less dialogue, and more sinister and barren settings. They portrayed desperate struggles of man's desertion by God. And the films revealed a crisis in his faith or spirituality, which was perhaps at odds with Bergman's intellect. He has had this very complicated relationship with religion and with the, the good Lord and with his father which I don't know if he has solved it today, but uh, he has certainly worked on it through, through a number of films. Von Sydow starred in almost all of these films, and he had a tendency to play similar roles. He had kind of um, a strict, sort of stoic face. That's Johann Hellström. Everything from The Seventh Seal to The, the Magician, or also called, known as The Face, and The Virgin Spring, um, through a glass darkly, he would... Um, 
play sort of uh, some strict doctor type. <laughs> uh, always sort of tormented, but holding it in. So everything will play out sort of in this uh, quite um, like marble face. Von Sido eventually wandered off to Hollywood. The role that tempted Von Sido over was a big one, none other than the son of God himself. George Stevens' epic, The Greatest Story Ever Told, told the story of Jesus Christ with Von Sido at the center of an ensemble cast. Sadly, the film flopped. He's gone. The body disappeared in the night. Are you sure? I went to see for myself. The tomb is empty. One of the soldiers. Did you question them? Yes. They saw nothing at all. Obviously. They swear they were not. Of course they do. The Roman punishment for sleeping on duty is dead. Incredible. In any case, the whole thing will be forgotten in a week. George Stevens made a great mistake, I'm afraid. He tried to make the ultimate version of uh, the life of Christ in order to satisfy everybody, not stepping on anybody's toes. And I think that's the last thing you should do with such a theme. Uh, so, unfortunately, the film turned out to be rather very beautiful but very boring and um, a lot of walking <laughs> very serious walking i would say max continued to make a name for himself in hollywood but it was not without its challenges i was swedish and i still am and uh, i will never be anything but swedish and in american films i will rarely be anything but foreigners and uh, foreigner the foreigner choice is very limited, unfortunately. Nazis. Well, Nazis, <laughs> there are a lot of Nazis, yes. Um, I have refused uh, to do most of them, but... Um, Dr. No, you refused, didn't you, Max? Well, yes, I did. Mm. But you got revenge by playing Blofeld, actually, yes. and never say never again. That's true. Von Sido would go on to rack up credits in a wide range of Hollywood films, everything from The Exorcist to Star Wars. He once asked Bergman what he thought of his first film and his shift to international cinema. Bergman said the greatest story ever told should have been done in Swedish. Taryn Joffe on Max von Sydow and the weighty old world of Ingmar Bergman there. Find out more about our Bergman season, which runs until the end of March, at bfi.org.uk. BFI curator Danny Lee is on a mission to bring more working-class talent into the British film industry. The writer, broadcaster and now BFI staffer is planning a season of films, talks and workshops to celebrate working-class cinema greats and help make it easier for a new generation of filmmakers from working-class backgrounds to develop their careers. Here's me and Danny talking about his upcoming season, Working Class Heroes. All right then, Danny, so can you tell us first of all what Working Class Heroes is? So Working Class Heroes is uh, an event taking place at BFI Southbank on Saturday the 14th of April and it's designed to celebrate working class screen talent, past, present and future. Uh, throughout April uh, we're running a season of Woodfall Films. Woodfall Films was the, the studio essentially, the London studio, responsible for the kitchen sink dramas of the 60s, Saturday night and Sunday morning, uh, all the way through to Kez, you know, at the, at the end of the 60s. And they kind of, they, they, they spawned the Working Class Heroes 
the idea of you know this working class movie star um, and so we want to bring that up to the present day and what we're going to do is in the middle of that Woodfall season that Woodfall moment we're going to take a day in April and we're going to celebrate contemporary talent we're going to join things up we're also going to bring a whole load of working class actors and filmmakers into the BFI South Bank on stage to talk to hopefully another generation who are coming up behind them to kind of illuminate and inspire and to give a, a voice to working class talent. It's interesting isn't it when we talk about diversity in filmmaking that we often talk about race and gender and sexuality and those are all good things but we don't often talk about class particularly in Britain. Well class is a really slippery term so it's difficult in that sense but yeah absolutely and I mean it's not to take away for a second any of the huge strides that we've made in other areas of diversity you know those are all hugely hugely important but yeah class and I think beyond class actually just economics are often un mentioned and economics is a huge problem for people I mean one of the, the you know the biggest barrier for people breaking into film or indeed any area of the arts or any area of kind of creativity is often money there's always that idea that fond idea that now in the age of iPhones everyone can just sit and kind of can make a movie on your phone it's not quite that simple I mean the film industry is still expensive and complex to break into I think there are also very very deep-seated cultural problems that people face in terms of their confidence in terms of the information that they need and that they, that, that they need to have about how to actually go about getting into film about access you know all of these things are things which I think if you come from you know a position of more social privilege essentially you take things for granted you take it for granted that you can walk into a room and feel a sense of confidence and a sense of belonging and so much of the film industry and kind of actually making films is about that it's about having a certain sense of entitlement a certain sense of confidence you know a certain sense of being in the right place um, whereas I think for a lot of people you know and I've probably include myself in this you know you go through you go through a career you know in in film or in the art feeling like you're waiting for a hand on your shoulder to pull you back out of the room. I was going to ask about that actually. I mean, what is, how would you describe your own class background and how does that inform your career, do you think? I mean, my class background is messy, I think, more than anything else. I mean, both my parents were pretty pure products of, you know, it was the explosion of social mobility that really happened at the end of the 50s and 60s. My parents come from council houses. My dad got onto university and he sort of became you know, socially mobile as a consequence. Um, so my parents, you know, went in, in different directions in, in, in that sense, kind of class-wise. I went to a comprehensive school, single-parent family, grew up with my mum who hadn't been to university. You know, there wasn't a huge amount of money, certainly. Um, you know, I have felt throughout my entire life, you know, as, as a journalist and particularly as a film journalist that you know I am in the wrong room a lot of the time it's quite difficult sometimes to find someone with the same accent as you and I think beyond that you know that's just that's something and nothing really but it literally speaks to a bigger problem which is a lack of shared experience and I think a lot of the time you know and, and journalism and film are, are parallel in this sense you know yeah you do feel that you're not always surrounded by people who share the same kind of cultural experience as you and the same outlook on the world you know and people who understand your story as a result of it. I get a sense from a lot of writing you've done about class and film recently that you feel like somehow the protest around um, working class talent moving up in the film industry has died down somewhat. Um, is that true and who do you see as a kind of carrier of the torch I guess? Well the timing of all this is, is deceptively wonderful or wonderfully deceptive because you know obviously at the moment you have you have three actors you know who are up for Oscars who come from from working class backgrounds um, in Britain, you know, you've got Gary Oldman, you've got Daniel Kaluuya, and you've got Leslie Manville. So it feels like it's almost like, well, it's, surely everything is fine. And Daniel, in particular, is you know, he's obviously this this incredible beacon. You know, he's someone, an actor who's broken through and who talks about himself explicitly as working class and about the fact that he came from a working class background. That was the thing which 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 tripped him up and which got in his way, and and made life difficult. Um, but I feel like Daniel's almost the exception that proves the rule. Actually, I mean, it's interesting. He has to go to America. You know, we can, you know, maybe later in the year, you know, we can celebrate. 
Daniel's career and what Daniel has achieved but it's interesting there's not a lot of British films that you could actually bring out and, and, and make part of that he's had to go to the States some of that I think is to do with race some of it is also to do with class and I do think that that you know, and this isn't just something I'm making up off the top of my head. I mean, this is this is from this whole series of conversations that I've had with working class, established working class actors and young working class actors trying to break through. I think you're seeing two things happening at the moment. You know, you're seeing a dwindling of roles and a kind of diminishing of roles for established actors where they're not getting starring roles so much because the stories, the kind of stories that are being told don't make room for them as much. Uh, and then I think beneath that, you're also seeing another generation coming through now or not coming through who are finding they can't even get to that stage because they can't even make those breakthroughs because actually school isn't teaching drama. Drama schools are then prohibitively expensive. You know, there's a whole load of very practical kind of structural financial problems in the way. It's very easy, I think, for, for, for those of us who are sort of working in the arts to think, well, actually, all you need to do is inspire. You know, you kindle a flame and someone sees this role model and they go, they go off and have this wonderful career. It's really not that simple. It's really tough for people. If people don't have money in their pocket and they don't have the contacts and they don't know mechanically how to, how to approach a world it's very difficult for it to happen. It's not happily ever after very often, unfortunately. So what we hope to do, I suppose, is, is twofold. It's to, to re-establish that connection of the role model. And it's also to give people a roadmap of how to actually go about fulfilling their own potential. If people want to find out more about the season, where can they go? So the season is going to be, uh, the event itself in April is going to be, tickets will be on sale from the end of February at the BFI website. Um, I would encourage people to come to the Future Film Festival, which is happening before that in the middle of February. We'll be talking a bit about the event at that. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically watch this space. I mean, we're going to be contacting everyone that we can to spread the word. Um, so anyone who's listening, you know, who wants to spread the word, please help us do that. 14th of April is the day. Details and tickets will be available on the BFI website from the end of February, beginning of March. And finally, film editor John Gregory's credits include work as diverse as Four Weddings and a Funeral, Naked and The Road. He's a regular for Mike Lee, and the pair are currently hard at work on post-production for Lee's film about the 1819 Peterloo Massacre, cunningly titled Peterloo. John's also the second 2018 Oscar nominee on this episode. He's been nominated for Best Editing for his work on Martin McDonagh's Free Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Free Billboard stars Frances McDormand as Mildred Hayes, a grieving mum who, after seven months of waiting for the police to uncover any information about her daughter's rape and murder, rents free billboards on the outskirts of town to shame the law into doing their job. A modern western that ping-pongs between comedy and tragedy, McDonough's film also stars Woody Harrelson as the put-upon police chief Willoughby and Sam Rockwell as his racist, violent deputy-slash-doofus Dixon. John took us through his thoughts on the film and shared memories from the rest of his career, when he popped into our Stephen Street screening rooms this week. My name is John Gregory and I'm a film editor. The film I finished last year was Three Billboards in Ebbing, Missouri. Martin likes the whole title. Martin McDonough, he's very precise. He's from the stage. Uh, he does a lot of theater, a lot of theater. So sort of dialogue and performances uh, the main, the main thing. Well, one of the things about him, which, uh, which I'm not know with any other director, is that he, when we get over, he takes all the rushes home and he goes through every single take, making notes about you know inflection and performance and whatever. I don't normally involve myself in as much as I don't say. Well, actually, I think this is a better take than that, because it's best to, because this is how you get to know what the director wants. And then after that, then 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 you do what you 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 want, and that's how it, that's how we worked. So, Mildred, how are you? 
murdered, Hayes? Why did you put up these billboards? My daughter Angela was murdered seven months ago. It seems to me the police department is too busy torturing black folks to solve actual crime. What the hell is this? Dixon, I'm in the middle of my goddamn Easter dinner. Sorry, kids. I know, Chief, but I think we got kind of a problem. Sunshine beating on a good time. I'd do anything to catch your daughter's killer. I don't think those billboards is very fair. The time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. It's like a modern-day Western, really, and I love Westerns ever since I was really... So I think, to me, it's still, even though they don't make them so much... To me, it's the, the the genre which I think is great. You know, it's Shakespearean. It's it's you know, it's epic and just right for the screen. And the motion, the emotions, are, are very highly charged. When Dixon gets fired, when he's on the porch, he, he and he goes in the door. You don't have, you can cut there, simple enough, and cut there. But I went inside because I noticed at the end of the first take that Martin shot, he comes and he just stands there. And it's, and it's all in silhouette and framed in the doorway. And, and you play games like that, you think, God, that was, that's just searches. And so I put that in, you know? There was one scene we, we took out where, when it was with, with the Dixon and his mum, where he comes back drunk and he's, he's, he's there in his underpants and he tries to get into bed with her. I mean, not, not, not to do anything, but, but he's just so drunk and she kicks him. I mean, he, he doesn't actually get in there, but she kicks him out, you know. But it was just a bit slapstick. You could take a bit too slapstick, and also you could take it as being sleazy if you wanted to really think about that. So, yes, so, so we, did, we did remove things. For achievement in film editing, Baby Driver, Dunkirk, I, Tanya, The Shape of Water, and three billboards outside Ebbin, Missouri. Being nominated for the Oscar is, is terrific. I, I really, you know, I don't know really what to say, how to be cool and calm and, and reflective. I'm not starting my career. I'm on the downward slope, as they say. But um, um, I... I it, it was just terrific. I couldn't believe it. And I know everybody says that, it's so corny, but it, it, it is, it's quite amazing. Years ago, when I was a teenager, I used to you know, watch the Oscars, and, but I mean, and just on film, film, film uh, newsreel, and, and you know, nothing like the way it is now. And I didn't know what I wanted to be then. I knew I just wanted to work in film, but I thought, God, it must be great to, 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 to be there and, and be part of that whole crowd of people that go back to 1929 and being nominated you are you're part of that group now we all like to win the pools and we all like to win the lottery so yeah we're great to win so what happened were you bored in manchester was i bored no i wasn't fucking bored i'm never bored that's a trouble with everybody you're all so bored You've had nature explained to you and you're bored with it. You've had the living body explained to you and you're bored with it. You've had the universe explained to you and you're bored with it. So now you just want cheap frills and like plenty of them and it doesn't matter how tawdry or vacuous they are as long as it's new, as long as it's new, as long as it flashes and fucking bleeps in 40 fucking different colours. Or whatever else you can say about me, I'm not fucking bored. Yeah, all right. So how's it all going for you? It's a bit boring, actually. Well, working with Mike Lee is fun. Because we worked together for so long, we, we just 
and we get on. It's just, it is just great fun. It really is great fun we're working with Mike because he's such a funny guy. Um, so it's enjoyable. I think, you know, I think there's enough angst in making films. It's, it's just when you can enjoy it and laugh and, you know, I mean, just relax at times, you know. He's written it, he's conceived it, um, he's rehearsed, the, you know, shot it and all the rest of it. He's, he's done it and it's his film. But he does expect the editor to, to bring a hell of a lot to it. I suppose that's an obvious thing to say, but, but Martin is, is, is very similar, and, and some other directors, Mike Newell, they, is because they know what they want to say in a scene, but they don't expect it, they don't want to sit there and say, oh, well, I think maybe you should cut this, maybe I think you should use that. They just let you do it, and then look at it, and then they'll, they'll, they'll obviously you know, tweak this, that, and the rest of it. And that's, and that's what he expects. He goes, I know Mike as well, he, he treats editing as a holiday. At this time of my career, if you like, or that, that I've got a lot of experience. So a lot of things you can really play around with by, by just trying off the wall stuff and still be able to keep a, a sense of what's going on. And I think that's, that, that's the thing, whereas obviously when you're younger, you, you, you make sure you gotta make sure this cuts for that and you gotta, you know, and you sort of follow full of things through. but now you can do you can do anything you know because all the rules are there to be broken and I think the more experience you have the more you feel comfortable about just letting it all go letting it all hang out there Free billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri is on general release now. You can see interviews with the director and cast from the closing night of last year's London Film Festival on the BFI's YouTube channel. That's it for this episode of the BFI podcast. You can find more episodes of the podcast on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts and contact me about the show on Twitter. I'm on at Henry H. Barnes. Special thanks to all the contributors this episode. Anna Bogatskaya, Johan Halstrom, Danny Lee and John Gregory. Extra special thanks to Taryn Joffe of the National Film and Television School, who's been an invaluable help in pulling this episode together. This episode of the BFI podcast was written, presented and produced by me, Henry Barnes, with additional interviewing, writing and presenting by Taryn Joffe and Anna Bogutskaya. Our theme tune is a track called Throwback Jack, written and performed by Tim Garland and used through license via Audio Network. I'll see you in a couple of weeks, and in the meantime, your pithy outro line goes here. <laughs>